0: The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of the third night. When we next see our narrator, he feels gloomy, confused, and oppressed as he reflects on the night before, his third night with Nastenka. Brimming over with love, her joy had been so infectious, her words so kind and solicitous, that he took it all to mean she was in love with him. He wonders how he could have been so blind when her love had long ago been claimed by another, and when her fondness for our narrator had been nothing more than a desire to include him in her happiness. When the lodger again did not appear, he says, she grew timid and discouraged, and instinctively drew closer to our narrator. Then, in her own unhappiness, she realized his at last, and felt sorry for him. That, in essence, is what happened on that third night, but he then steps back and explains that night in its more poignant details. He had met Nastenka with an expectation of happiness, and found her beaming with pleasure and giddy with expectation. She said she was exceptionally glad to see him, and when with pounding heart he asked her why, she responded that she liked him for not having fallen in love with her and thanked God for sending her such a good friend. At this explanation, he felt both horrible sadness and laughter stirring in his soul. When she said she wanted to meet the lodger together, and to show him how fond they were of each other, his heart was too full, and he broke into a confession. He told her of his sleepless night, feeling as though one minute must go on for all eternity, and as though all life had come to a standstill for him. All at once, she knew, and hid behind a pretense of obliviousness, laughter, and frivolous flirtation. Hearing the bells chime, he spitefully drew her attention to the fact that the lodger still hadn't appeared, and then, cursing himself for it, began comforting her with the thousands of possible excuses for his absence. Reassured, she told him he must go to the lodger the next morning, and then come to her with whatever he discovers. Then, observing him tenderly, she began to cry. She confessed a thought. Her lodger, she knew, was not as good as our dreamer, and yet she loved him more. She stumbled over her impressions of the lodger, at the conclusion of which our narrator says meaningfully, that they show she loves him more than anything in the world, and far more than herself. Nastenka agreed, and then shared another thought that had struck her. Asking forgiveness for her simplicity, she said that it seemed that he was sacrificing something for her, that she was grateful, and that he was now quite a different man from the dreamer he once described." After some minutes in which both were too emotional to speak, she said it was clear that the lodger wasn't coming, and he responded firmly that he would come the next day. Parting, she said, we shall always be together, shan't we? That night he walked the rainy streets, found himself two steps from her door, and returned home more depressed than ever and longing for tomorrow. The next of my posts was called The Magnanimity of the Dreamer's Love. One striking feature of this story is the heartwarming magnanimity of the dreamer's love for Nastenka. Many have called this love sacrificial, and so too does Nastenka herself. But is it truly a sacrifice? I think of it instead as a noble commitment to his own values— Often such a devotion involves pain or self-deprivation of some form, but we are suffering that pain and deprivation in the name of honoring something that ultimately matters to us more. When his heart throbs with love for Nastanka, and she takes him by the hand and calls him a friend and more than a brother, he responds with sadness, but still with laughter in his soul. I'll talk more about why I think that is after the fourth night, but for now I just want to suggest that he can only feel laughter in his soul because he so fundamentally values Nastenka's happiness, such that his own pain only goes so deep. When he finally confesses his love and she responds with confusion and dismissiveness, he allows himself only a fleeting moment of resentment— as he points out that the lodger has not come. Then, self-aware of his motive, and recovering himself, he focuses instead on her feelings, and seeks to reassure her that he will come, and that she will have her happy ending. And when she stumbles over an explanation of the feelings for the lodger that she doesn't entirely understand, and her fears that she respects him too much, and that they are not equals— our dreamer brushes aside her apprehensions and tells her it just shows that she loves him more than anything in the world, and far more than herself. He knows, because that's how he feels. The next of my posts was called Universal Brotherhood. Nastanka calls herself simple. Hers is an elemental sort of simplicity, an absence of all corruption and a purity of soul. When she fails to understand herself or the world, it is a fault that arises only from her youth and unworldliness, and never from a failure to look at everything with wide, eager, unguarded eyes. There is an innocence and an absence of cynicism in her belief that she can command our dreamer not to fall in love with her, in her conviction that they can be great friends, and more than brother and sister. So, when our dreamer confesses his love, she seems at first confused. She tries dismissing it with laughter, and then, when he persists, tries burying it beneath a pretense of playful flirtatiousness. But when at last she begins to see, to glimpse the depth of his feeling and the magnanimity of his devotion, she sheds tender tears and she gropes at a greater understanding. She says, It seems to me that you, for instance, at the present moment, it seems to me that you are sacrificing something for me. Forgive me for saying so. I am a simple girl, you know. I have seen very little of life, and I really sometimes don't know how to say things. But I only wanted to tell you that I am grateful, that I feel it all, too. Oh, may God give you happiness for it. Even in the face of her understanding, she believes in the promise of her own happiness, of his happiness, and of their everlasting friendship. In his biography of Dostoevsky, Konstantin Micholsky says, "It is in point not to the dreamer, but rather to Nastenka, guileless and naive." that the author finally entrusts his own inviolable dream of universal brotherhood." Michalki sees this essential humanity in her candid reflection." Quote, but do you know what strikes me now? Only I'm not talking about him now, but speaking generally. All this came into my mind some time ago. Tell me, how is it that we can't all be like brothers together? Why is it that even the best of men always seem to hide something from other people and to keep something back? Why not say straight out what is in one's heart? I think I'm beginning to see the way in which that dream of universal brotherhood, that elemental compassion, animates Dostoevsky's work. And I suspect it is a theme we should watch for in Crime and Punishment. The last of my posts was called Fire and Ice. A line in our last reading brought to mind a favorite sonnet of mine, Amoretti Thirty, by Edmund Spenser. It was the expression of our dreamer's tortured feelings when Nastenka declared how fond she was of him. I'll read that section first. How fond we are of each other, I cried. Oh, Nastenka, Nastenka, I thought. How much you have told me in that saying. Such fondness at certain moments makes the heart cold and the soul heavy. Your hand is cold. Mine burns like fire. How blind you are, Nastenka! Oh, how unbearable a happy person is sometimes. Spencer offers a similarly tortured reflection in his sonnet. He marvels at how it defies the laws of physics that the more fiery his passion for his love becomes, the colder her heart grows, and the more frozen her heart, the more he burns in boiling sweat. Here it is. My love is like to ice, and I to fire. How comes it then that this, her cold so great, is not dissolved through my so-hot desire, but harder grows the more I her entreat? Or how comes it that my exceeding heat is not allayed by her heart frozen cold, but that I burn much more in boiling sweat, and feel my flame's augmented manifold? What more miraculous thing may be told that fire, which all things melts, should harden ice, and ice, which is congealed with senseless cold, should kindle fire by wonderful device. Such is the power of love in gentle mind, that it can alter all the course of kind. Thank you for reading White Nights with me, and I hope you enjoy the final chapter.